Hey, good evening. Welcome back. Great to have you back for another week of Bible Study Fellowship. We're going to be looking at the book of Hosea tonight as we continue our study of people of the promised land. Let me open us in prayer and we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, the opportunity to be in your word. Lord, thank you that uh, these words that were written by Hosea thousands of years ago are not written to us, but they're written for us. And so as we look at the words that Hosea spoke, your words to your people, the nation of Israel, Lord, help us to rightly understand how we can apply them to our lives and live as your faithful people. We pray all this, pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm wondering if any of you in your travels over the Christmas holidays or potentially back as far as Thanksgiving encountered some grocery stores that were giving out free samples. Uh, here in the area where I live, the stores that do this most commonly are Whole Foods and Sam's Club. On a weekend, you can walk through a Sam's Club or a Whole Foods and not need to eat any lunch, go hungry because the free samples are going to be out. One of the things about free samples is they're an enticement. They're, they're there to potentially encourage us to buy a product that maybe we've never had before or we've never seen before. And, uh, you know, one of the things about the free sample is that it's free. And so even though as you look at the free sample that's there and you might notice that it has uh, cucumber and rhubarb and maybe some other things in it that you don't like, you're like, uh, it's a free sample. I'm going to try it anyway, uh, just to experience the the free sample. And perhaps you've walked out of the store with a, a cucumber rhubarb chutney that you really never would have bought apart from the free sample. I think as we join uh, the book of Hosea tonight, what has been happening in the land of Israel is a little bit about a little bit like free samples. The people had been sampling some of the pagan religions that were prevalent among the nations that lived nearby them, and there were parts of those religions that they had decided were very delicious, and they were going to begin to incorporate those alternate religions, those alternate deities into the patterns of worship that they may have had uh, for the true God of Israel, the true God of the Bible. And so there was a... a a blending, a pulling together of of other religions, and it was resulting uh, in a rejection of the true God of the nation of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God uh, known as Yahweh. And and so, even though the people hadn't thrown God away, uh, they were pursuing these samples that were out there. And uh, the one of the processes that probably began in the hearts of the people was as they began to sample some of this and sample some of that and pull these other religions in, uh, they began to push God out. And as God was pushed out of their lives, which, you know, God provides a great sense of fulfillment, meaning and purpose for his people, as God is pushed out, the people feel unfulfilled. They feel unsatisfied, and so they begin to sample even more. And so, you know, in a certain sense, idolatry brings about more idolatry and, and, and more deities and uh, more pagan practices. Uh, and so God's people had been in this vicious, vicious cycle of pulling in surrounding religions uh, and polluting the true worship of God that should have been occurring in the land of Israel. 
we see Hosea come onto the scene and begin to deal with the, this problem. It had been a problem throughout our study. We've seen it uh, from the beginning. Jeroboam introduces golden calf worship in the northern kingdom of Israel, and we had seen problems with other deities as uh, we've been through our lessons uh, in this past week. And I think the, the, the main thing we want to learn as we come to Hosea is that God expects to have an exclusive relationship with his people. God expects to have an exclusive relationship with his people. Uh, you know, God knows as our creator, as our maker, God is someone who knows what is needed in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds for us to have a sense of human flourishing. In the Old Testament, this is referred to with the Hebrew word shalom. Uh, it's a sense of completeness. It's a sense of fullness, uh, a sense that our lives matter, a sense that we have purpose. And God knows that the only way that we can experience this is through that exclusive relationship with him. This isn't something that God is saying, I need, you know, God doesn't have some narcissistic problem where he needs people to worship him. But instead, God knows that as his created beings, we are not going to understand our purpose in this world apart from him. And God wants to have that exclusive relationship that exists between his people and himself. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. We're going to be looking at Hosea in two parts. It's a 14-chapter book. Uh, it's it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting book. It's a great book. It's a hard book in many ways to be able to read and to be able to grapple with uh, sin and adultery and rejection of God and the way that it deals with it. We're going to look at Hosea in uh, chapters 1 through 3. Uh, there's a strong theme in this section, uh, an enacted parable of Hosea marrying Gomer, uh, who, is, uh, who is a prostitute. And uh, that, that theme of prostitution and adultery is woven through these first three chapters. And then we're going to look at chapters 4 through 14, which is a, it's a long poetic section. It's often referred to as Hosea's parable. Uh, but it is a long poetic section where Hosea is going to share God's words for the people of Israel as a time of judgment is coming. So 1 through 3, 4 through 14, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to start Hosea 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, Hosea's book starts off, we know, we know when Hosea was operating as a prophet. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Berai, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and also the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. You might recognize some of these names, but not all of them are broader study. We're going to be looking at Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, next week. And we had just finished up, the last time that we were in Kings, we were in Second Kings 14, we read about Jeroboam, uh, who's often referred to as Jeroboam II, to differentiate him from the original Jeroboam that was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel. So we have a little bit of context from our, our study of uh, Second Kings as to who these kings are. Hosea is a contemporary of Isaiah. I don't know if they knew each other, but they were operating during the reign of the same king. The first part of, uh, of this, of this uh, uh, book is directions from God for Hosea. Hosea is given a hard task. He is called to take for his wife a known prostitute. And so Hosea goes and he marries a woman named Gomer. 
And as you begin to think about this marriage relationship that would have existed between Hosea and Gomer, we almost know out of the gate it's probably going to be a dysfunctional relationship. Uh, the the purpose of of God directing Hosea to marry Gomer is to create a parallel for Gomer's adultery in the marriage relationship with the nations of Israel adultery as they pursued idols uh, and other gods instead of the true God. And so if we think about the family experience, there's three children we're going to learn about, but if we think about the family life, if we think about the pain of of this broken uh, husband and wife relationship, what was the impact going to be on those three kids? Uh, you know, how many people in this family are going to need therapy? Uh, who's going to be depressed? Who's going to feel like their life has been destroyed because of this unfaithful uh, wife that was a part of this marriage situation? Like all of these problems that are rooted in Gomer's unfaithfulness, as far down the rabbit hole as you want to go in terms of thinking about the pain and the dysfunction and the, the terrible experience that this family must have had, that is absolutely true as we think about the nation of Israel. Their unfaithfulness, the unfaithfulness of those people, resulted in a myriad of problems internally within their own family structures, within, their, within the leadership structure of the nation, uh, the ability of the, of the nation of Israel to interact with other nations, uh, the, 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 the challenges that Israel would have interacting with God himself, all of that is affected. As far down that rabbit hole as you want to go, how deep did, did this problem of spiritual adultery impact the nation of Israel? It was hugely significant, hugely interfered with the ability of God's people to operate as God's people. It was preventing them from fulfilling their purpose in this world of being a nation of priests, pronouncing uh, the wonder and the goodness of God to the nations. We read about Gomer's three children. Now, uh, the passage doesn't explicitly say this, but there's no reason for us to presume that all three of these children are Hosea's children. First of all, uh, the names of these children are going to be emblematic of some of God's upcoming actions. So the names are prophetic, and the names are a little unusual. First of all, uh, born to Hosea and Gomer, it does seem like it was Hosea's son, is uh, a boy named Jezreel. Now, the Valley of Jezreel is a place. Uh, it is a place where God will put an end to Jehu's dynasty. That's the meaning of this uh, son's name. Jehu's dynasty so far has been four kings. It began with Jehu, and then it went to Jehoaz, and then Jehoash, and then Jeroboam II. So there had been four kings that so far that we've read about in Jehu's line. And uh, the Lord's problem with Jehu was the slaughter uh, that had occurred uh, at the, during the time of Jehu's reign. So God has planned judgment coming in the area of Jezreel for uh, Jehu's dynasty, Jehu's house. Uh, as, we, as we think about Jezreel, uh, the Valley of Jezreel is a is a prominent part of the what would have been at this time the Northern Kingdom of Israel. It's a valley. It was a very fertile area, great place to have a battle at this time of uh, battles. It was open. It was wide. You could get a lot of people there, and uh, it is a valley that will occur preeminently as we think about the location of God's judgment. Uh, we 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 look at the name of this. It, it talks in our passage. Uh, about a great day, 
Great shall be the day of Jezreel. I believe it's at the end or in the middle part of here of chapter 1. There's a promise that there's going to be a great day of Jezreel. Uh, uh, Chapter 1, verse 11. uh, And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. On the southern side of the valley of Jezreel, there's a city called Megiddo. Uh, if you have ever heard the, the term Armageddon or Armageddo, it means the plain of Megiddo. And again, this is a place that's associated with uh, God's judgment, not only potentially in the time of Hosea, but also as we look at the book of Revelation, some of the visions that Daniel has uh, talk about this great battle that will occur near or in this valley. So this is a significant valley, not only for end times, but also for our study tonight. So son number one, Jezreel. Number two is a daughter. Her name is No Mercy, uh, an unusual name because uh, Israel would no longer be experiencing God's mercy. The time of God's judgment uh, has come. There have been many prophets that have already spoken to the land of Israel, encouraging them to return to the Lord, give up their sin. They have not done so. And so at this point, the time of God's mercy is coming to an end, and the name of this uh, daughter appears to implicate that that time is coming soon. And then finally, there is another son that's born. His name is Not My People. And uh, this is an interesting uh, name because it does definitely seem that for a time, the nation of Israel is going to not be considered the people of God, but God in his mercy does also promise to bring them back. So it is going to be for a season, uh, the children of God are going to be referred to as not my people, but yet even in verse 10, uh, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, probably in the valley of Jezreel, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And so there are going to be outcasts for a time, but there will be a time when God brings the nation of Israel, back uh, to be a part of his people. Again, this notion of of marriage as a parallel for the covenant of Israel, uh, adultery as a a parallel for idolatry, continues as we go into chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a lament that God speaks to the unfaithful nation of Israel. It begins with God saying, say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sister, you have received mercy. Again, drawing upon those names that we've seen given uh, to these two children. But instead of being not my people in this situation, the nation of Israel has been God's people. The nation of Israel has received God's mercy, and God is pleading with them. Uh, it, verse 2, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And so as we as we read through some of this content, um, it is a very uh, almost explicit way that God is going to reveal, not only to the people, but also to those around them, the consequences and impact of their idolatrous sin. Uh, it's it's written in a poetic form, so if your Bibles are indented, uh, that it's a, it's an indication that this is a Hebrew poetic section. A lot of the book of those of Hosea is written this way. <coughs> Excuse me. The crux of this poem appears to be around uh, verse thirteen, 
And uh, it is it is really the, the main problem, I think, is stated here. I'll read it for you. This is chapter 2, verse 13. And I will punish her for the feast days of the balls, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Uh, forgetting the Lord is, is something that the people of Israel were reminded again and again to not do. Uh, much of their calendar that they had was to remind them of ways that God had met their needs, whether it was the Feast of Passover, the Day of Atonement. Uh, it was a reminder of, of why is it that we do these things? Why do we offer these sacrifices? Why do we live our lives these, these way? It was meant to remind the next generation as to why it is that we follow and serve the Lord. Uh, if we look in Deuteronomy, there is a warning. There's many warnings. If you just want to go to like Bible Gateway and search like, you know, do not forget the Lord, you're going to get a bunch of hits in Deuteronomy. One of them is in verse, uh, chapter four, verse 23 in Deuteronomy. It says, be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Okay, so just one example there. Here's one that's significant to our reading right now, uh, Deuteronomy 8, 19. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow after other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. And so the reason that the people needed to remember God is is that there there were consequences for them to 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 live righteous lives and and not remember who God is. And so there's all these reminders of like the reason that we live the way that we live, the reason that we care for our neighbors, the reason that we consider the Lord first uh is because uh uh, of our history, the covenant that we've made with, with God, the things that he has done for us, the way that he has made us, his people, way back in history on Mount Sinai. And it seems like the main problem, or one of the main problems, that has resulted in, in uh, the idolatry is that the people have forgotten God. They've forgotten who he is, they've forgotten what he has done, uh, and they have forgotten what he has promised to do. Uh, if they forget him or if they turn away from him. So there were some consequences uh, that were spoken uh, as a part of that covenant. And one of those consequences was you'd be cast out of the land. You'd experience destruction for forgetting about God and worshiping other gods. Despite uh, the fact that Israel as a nation had chosen to reject God, this, this, this book is full of promise of redemption even if we look uh, at this scene where, where God is pouring out his heart and his frustration with the people at the end of chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, and in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, the child named no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. So again, there is a plan for future redemption, for future restoration for the land of Israel, uh, but again, there will be hardship that will come because Israel has forgotten the Lord. As we go into chapter 3, we see Hosea sort of enacting uh, some of the things that God was talking about in chapter 2. Hosea is told by the Lord, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man as an, an, an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And so we see Hosea going, 
and purchasing Gomer from what appears to be uh, a slave market. Uh, there's a price that's set for her of 15 shekels, a bunch of barley, um, and uh, she is purchased again uh, and becomes the wife to Hosea. Uh, Hosea gives her clear directions as to what she's supposed to do. Uh, and the reason is, is because their marriage, again, is being symbolic of what is going to happen to the people of Israel uh, as the Lord begins to to work to bring them back to himself. And so, uh, you must not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without kings or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward... The children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall come in, uh, fear the Lord, and to his goodness in later days. So again, as as Hosea and Gomer are coming back together to restore their relationship, they are looking forward to a king like David. David was David's line was reigning in Judah. And so if the nation of Israel is going to be looking to a king like David, they need to look. They need to be reunited, rejoined uh, with the nation of Judah. And so as, as Gomer and as Hosea come back together again, they are looking forward uh, to this king that is mentioned here at the end of chapter 3. The principle for this section is that God is good for us. God is good for us. You know, there's some things that are out there that everybody sort of accepts as being like good for you, right? Water. People would say drinking enough water, you know, it's going to be good for you. Uh, healthy food, maybe like a, like a nice salad, uh, it's good for you. Getting enough sleep, going to the doctor, uh, having you know, taking time for exercise. Uh, these are all things that we would probably say unequivocally are good for us. And maybe you've even made a New Year's resolution about maybe stopping doing something that's bad for you or potentially starting to do something that is good for you. I think one of the things that I've often overlooked in my own life, and maybe you have too, is that an exclusive relationship with God is one of the things that's on the list of things that are good for us. And I've probably made resolutions in the past about losing weight or being healthy or you know, not having quite as many donuts, um, but I've never really said to myself, you know, the thing that would be really good for me this year is to make sure that my my relationship with the Lord is exclusive and begin to look for the, some of those things that I've been maybe sampling, uh, thought processes, ways of living, you know, philosophies, ideologies that I've been looking at and saying, well, that's really interesting. That sounds kind of exciting. Uh, sometimes I have a tendency to want to add things into my life that are maybe good, but those things can tend to push God out. And perhaps you can think of some of those things as well. Are there things that you have added into your life that are pushing God out of his primary place in your heart? And then and then, if you can also think back about times when maybe God has been more central in your life, what has been your experience? How have you felt from a standpoint of having purpose, having meaning, having the sense of shalom and peace in your life? If you can remember those times when God is central, when God has been central in my life, it just feels like everything lines up. And so I have to wrestle and think and ask God to help me identify those things, those free samples that I've pulled in and brought into my heart, brought into my life that really have no place to be there. 
as we move forward into uh, chapters 4 through 14, we, we begin to understand some of the specific behaviors that God was identifying. You know, one of the one of the challenges that you and I might cite, you know, if we get in trouble at work or at school, you know, one of the things we might want to say to our teacher or to our boss or to our manager or whatever is to say like, you know, why didn't you tell me what I was doing wrong? Uh, why didn't we have communication about my behavior or my tardiness or the way that I spoke to customers or the way that I punctuate or my use of apostrophes or my use of quotations? Like, why didn't you tell me that there was a problem? Uh, and I think that this section is really intended so that the nation of Israel specifically understands what it is that they've been doing that are bothering God. Uh, Hosea is the mouthpiece of that. But God is the one who is reminding the nation of what the problem is. Uh, there, there's again, there's so much in these passages. It's going to be it's difficult to even sum up. But I'm going to take a crack at it. First of all, what I'm going to tell you is is that there are three broad areas. There's probably more than this, but there's three broad areas that I see uh, God focusing on as He goes through these next ten chapters. First of all, there's a series of of accusations. Uh, things that God has indicated that the nation has been doing or, or is doing uh, that, that are problematic. So there's a series of accusations. Second of all, there's prophetic statements that God makes. What is going to happen? What is coming next? And then finally, uh, the other category of, of items is an appeal. God is appealing to the people. He is appealing to them. Uh, he is. He is. Th- this book is meant as an intervention. It is an opportunity for the people to return and to come back into that right relationship, turn away from idolatry, and return to the Lord. So let's talk about first of all. So again, accusations, prophecy, and appeal are the three things we're going to look at. Some of the accusations that God points out to the people is first of all, there has been recurrent idolatry. Uh, we can see in uh, chapter eight. Golden calf worship is called out as being a problem. Uh, chapter 9, verse 1, Israel has played the whore and forsaken God. Uh, chapter 9, verse 10, Israel has consecrated themselves to Baal. Baal worship is again mentioned in chapter 13, verse 1, and other places. One of the other accusations that God makes repeatedly throughout this section is he rebukes both the nations of Judah and the nations of Israel for looking to other kings for aid. Uh, there is a, a call in, in 513, chapter 513, turning to foreign kings for aid, specifically Assyria. Chapter 7, verse 11, calling for help from foreign nations, focusing on Egypt and Assyria. Uh, they were they, Israel was called to look to the true king when they needed help, and that would be God himself. Again, one of the things that the people are accused of doing uh, is forgetting about God. Chapter 4, verse 6, there is a rejection of knowledge. They have forgotten about God. And in 11.1, there is a forgetfulness about what God has done. God called the people out of Egypt. And even though God delivered them, the people walked away from God. So there is a forgetfulness. Uh, there is a forgetting what God has done, who God is, uh, what he means to the people. 
some of the statements that we see throughout these verses are uh, prophetic. So thinking about the prophetic sections, and again, I, th- my lists are not exhaustive. These are exemplary. Uh, there's more content that you could find on you know, accusations that God makes against his people. Uh, they're all over the place. Uh, some of the prophecy that God speaks, number one, uh, he makes it clear that the nation of Assyria will play a role in the northern kingdom's punishment. Uh, Chapter 10, verses 5 through 6, the Assyrian army will carry away one of the golden calves or both of the golden calves. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 5, Assyria will rule Israel. And then uh, chapter 14, verse 1, Samaria will bear her guilt. She will fall by the sword. Uh, So the nation of Assyria is going to play a military role in carrying out some punishment on the land of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, One of the things that also is out there, there's a couple of times when God makes mention of uh, ultimately striving to remove idolatry uh, from the land. And one of the ways that he's going to do that is that some of the people participating in idolatry are going to be wiped out. Uh, And so that's in, in chapter 13, verse 3. Uh, there is a mention of people participating in, in child sacrifice will become like a smoke or a mist in the land. They will just disappear. Uh, a couple other places, uh, there is an emphasis on uh, out of the mouths of people, pulling out the name of the Baals, uh, pulling out the idolatry uh, out of the land of Israel. So one of the things that God is going to do, we don't know when, uh, but he is going to pull false religions, idol worship out of his people. And again, one of the promises that we read about, uh, one of the prophecies that we read about is a promise that the nation of Israel, even though there is judgment, even though there's going to be a period of being out of the land, uh, there is still this promise that they will be ultimately brought back into the land. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 10, um, when the Lord roars like a lion, his children shall come trembling from the west. They'll come trembling like birds from Egypt. And like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will turn them to their homes, declares the Lord. So even though uh, God is speaking his accusations, he's speaking about the punishment that's going to happen in the land of Israel, there is still the promise of restoration. The other thing that we see happening through these sections is uh, an appeal. God is appealing to the people. He is appealing to them to hear. Uh, If we look at the way that chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, it both starts with the direction to hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. In this case, they were called to listen and hear the words of Hosea. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1, hear this, O priests, pay attention, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. Uh, God is announcing um, what he is going to do, and he wants the people to hear and to engage uh, with the things he is directing. One of the things that we see God calling for is a true return. Uh, in chapter 6, the people say, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. And what we see in chapter 6, that this return was not genuine. Uh, it says here in chapter four, chapter six, verse four, uh, your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Uh, God is looking at the hearts of the people 
and he wants their hearts to be steadfast and focused on him. Chapter 6, verse 8, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God wants the hearts of his people to be wholly devoted to him. And this false return, this false repentance that was talked about in verse 6 is not the, the true genuine turning that God is looking for. Uh, there is a, 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 a the genuine repentance doesn't come. Uh, it isn't explained. It isn't it isn't told to us what it looks like until all the way at chapter fourteen. Uh, chapter fourteen is a picture of what true return, true repentance of the people would look like. It, it begins very similar to chapter six, chapter fourteen, verse one: "Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words." And return to the Lord. And so this true return, what are you going to say to the Lord? Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. Uh, this is a true return. There's promise of restoration in 14. Uh, and so this is what the true return is going to look like. And this is what God truly desires for his people is restoration, not punishment. As we think about the principle for this section, uh, God welcomes his people to return. God welcomes his people to return. It's oftentimes hard for us to go back to places of failure. If you did poorly on an exam at school, it can be hard to go back to that class. Uh, If you get in trouble with your parents, it can be hard to be at home. Um, If you have a relationship that goes poorly or you're arguing, it can be hard to be with that person because of the tension that's present. Uh, and, And despite the fact that we don't want to go back to our places of failure, that is exactly what God is calling his people to do. You have fa- you have been an adulterous, idolatrous people, and the Lord is saying, come back. Come back to me. Uh, it's, it's a great reminder of the love that God has for his people. I'm sure that the people of Israel had many reasons for not wanting to return to the Lord, many reasons to continue uh, with their idolatry and with the lives that they had built for themselves. Um, but if you think about your life, if you think about, you know, if I think about my life, what is preventing us from returning to the Lord? What are the things in our hearts or the things that we've sampled that we've brought in that have made it, you know, so delicious and so tasty that we're like, no, no, I, I'm not interested in returning, Lord. I'm not interested in experiencing shalom. Uh, I'm not interested in experiencing uh, the life that you have for me. Uh, what are those things that we're holding on to in our heart? that are preventing us from returning. And have we made the same mistake that Israel has done? Israel forgot who God was. They forgot the things that God did. They forgot what his character was like. Uh, God is not looking to punish those who return to him. Have you forgotten, have I forgotten, what God has done for us? Have we forgotten? Have we forgotten what God has done? Uh, One of the things that the people of Israel forgot was that... uh, God led them out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and God set the people free from their physical slavery with a mighty hand, right? With a mighty hand, God brought them out. And one of the things that we can forget are the things that God has done for us. Now, you might be thinking of, well, what has God done for me? The one thing that God has done, the greatest thing that God has done for us is sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. By doing so, we were freed from slavery not to Egypt, not to a person, 
but from slavery to sin. But we can forget that Jesus did this for us. We sort of want to think about, like, what have you done for me lately, God? Uh, But by sending Jesus, this was a great, huge, massive thing that God did. And and Jesus' life on this earth ushered in an era of a new covenant. The people of Israel were living underneath the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, and you know we can talk about what that is, and we can look at that in the in the in the book of Leviticus. But Jesus brought in a new covenant, and he talked about that covenant the night before he died on the cross, uh, when he instituted with his disciples the Last Supper or the Eucharist or communion. And and this time reminds us that there's this massive uh, this this act of Jesus was so massive that it was going to fulfill the Mosaic Covenant and other covenants of the Bible, and it was going to establish a new covenant that was based upon faith or belief in Jesus. And so, as a result of that, you know, we, we, uh, we think about this idea of cups, you know, the cups that we're going to drink. Um, we, as followers of Jesus, get to drink a little bit of a cup, and it's a cup of God's blessing, it's the blessing that God has poured out onto us through Jesus. And, and the way that, that God was able to invite this idolatrous nation back and, and not smite them from the earth was because God knew that Jesus was going to have this massive activity on the cross of forgiveness of sins, resurrection from the dead. Israel could come back and not face punishment from God because God put off their punishment Onto Christ. Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath so that we can taste the little cup of God's blessing today. We'll experience God's blessing fully when Jesus returns. But until then, what we have to remind ourselves is that Romans 8 1 is true. Paul reminds us, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friend, are you and I willing to repent, confess, and return to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have the opportunity to come back to you. Thank you, Lord, that when we come back, we will not face punishment uh, because you have poured out all of your wrath, all of our punishment onto your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for his life. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts and help us to return to you through the blood of Christ. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.